Isn't it good to be able to fellowship with one another? Uh, Yako uh, really helped us this morning as we came together this morning at the start to really quieten our hearts before God. Because that's what we've come to do together this morning. We've come to meet together with the true and living God. So let's quieten our hearts now as we sit at his feet and listen to his voice speak to us through his word. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 12. And this is the word of the Lord. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had gone, that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would block out the distractions of this day, of this past week or even this week to come and that by your Holy Spirit you would open our ears to hear you speaking to us through your word. And Father, we pray for myself that I would speak in a way which is faithful to your word and is helpful to each other. Help me to speak, Lord, in a way that honours you and brings blessing and encouragement and comfort to everyone here. Lord, we thank you that you are alive. And we thank you that you hear and you respond to our prayers. And we look forward to how you will answer them. For we pray them in your name. Amen. A guy I used to uh, know many years ago at Bible College in Sydney 
started a ministry particularly to TAFE students. This was something a little bit different because most people normally have university ministries and things like that. But he particularly wanted to reach those who were doing a trade. And so he wanted his approach to be very different to how we normally do things at university. He wanted to disciple people in a way which he said was much more down to earth and far less academic and theoretical. Not that people, can I say, in a trade aren't intelligent. Some of the smartest people I know are tradies. But our approach in reaching people from this particular background as evangelicals, well, we tend to be more university orientated. We tend to be much more theoretical. And so this particular guy, as I said, wanted to shake things up a bit and do things a lot different. His ministry was going to be bold and direct. For instance, the slogan was, uh, of his ministry, I think was quite brilliant. It was this, Jesus did a trade, his life for yours. I thought it was so clever that even I bought a t-shirt, even though I've never been to TAFE and I used to wear it around all over the place. I got all kinds of bemused looks whenever I was out in public. I don't think people really knew how to respond. I still remember this one time that we were travelling on a train in Sydney and these two teenage girls were whispering behind my back, much to my wife's deep embarrassment. It wasn't long after that before my T-shirt mysteriously vanished in the wash. (laughs) But that could be just a conspiracy, right? There was this one particular T-shirt which he designed though, which even I was not quite game enough to wear. It was this picture of this guy throwing up with this enormous projectile vomit coming out of his mouth. The photo had been taken, you might say, midstream. And the caption beneath it was this, Jesus still heals the paralytic. Now, you don't have to be a tradie, although if you are a tradie, you immediately get the joke. Because a lot of young blokes, especially on building sites, love to boast on Monday morning how blind drunk they got on the weekend. That they were legless and couldn't stand up. And so the serious point behind his comment was Jesus still transforms lives which are broken by sin. Jesus still transforms lives radically which have been broken by sin. Such as the healing which is needed when people are ensnared in all kinds of addictions such as tragically and commonly, unfortunately, happens in Australia with substance abuse. But as we all know, with Jesus, friends, there is always hope. There's always hope. He redeems the most broken and hopeless situation when we genuinely put our faith in him. When we earnestly seek him, he promises to be found by us. When we're in the bottom of the pit and we're tempted to think, Oh, there's no hope for me. There's no way I could possibly find a way out of this. With Jesus, there is always hope. Because he has been given, as we've been seeing, as we made our way through Mark's gospel, authority over all things. Whether it's demons, death, or disease. And as such, he has the power to remake us 
again into the image of God, no matter how far we've strayed, no matter how far we've fallen. Chapter 2 begins by Jesus returning to his hometown, which is a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Because it's Capernaum. Mark is so concerned with the action as to what takes place that he, in some ways, passes over the significance of this. But in the parallel passage from Mark, oh, sorry, Mark, Matthew chapter 4, we're told that he went to live in Capernaum from Nazareth so as to specifically fulfill the prediction of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. For this was the place where people were told to expect God the Messiah to come. It was the Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And it said, the people who are living in darkness will see a great light and it will come from there. He would be known, remember this, we, we actually read this passage nearly every Christmas. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That figure who's described there was told in Isaiah 9 would come from Capernaum. And this is exactly where Jesus is from. And so it's important that Mark actually tells us that this is where Jesus is locating his ministry because it's where you would expect the Messiah to come from and to be. You see, Jesus has been healing lepers, as we saw last week, casting out demons, but most of all, teaching with authority. He was fulfilling all of the things from passages like Isaiah chapter 35 that said the Messiah would do those kinds of things. He wouldn't just come from that place. Anybody can kind of do that, can't they? You can be fortunate enough to be you know, born in a certain region, but you can't do the kinds of things Jesus does unless you really are the Christ, unless you really are God in the flesh. And as such, Jesus is clearly the one whom the scriptures so accurately predicted was going to come. This also explains why it was so reasonable or even logical for what happens next when Jesus is met by the fervent, or I would say friendly faith of the paralyzed man and his companions. Because notice, if you have your Bibles open, have a look at verse 5. It's not just the paralyzed man who is said to have faith in Jesus, but it's their faith, plural as well. Their faith is expressed by their willingness to climb up on top of a roof, dig a hole and lower their friend right into the middle where Jesus is sitting. It would have been an extraordinary scene. But such is their faith that nothing will stop them. Believing in who Jesus is and what he has come to do is absolutely vital. You see, we don't just have faith in an ephemeral, sort of nebulous sign of way. We have faith in what the scriptures say God is going to do and who he is and what he's like. I've been reflecting quite a bit about this one particular verse. Um, again, if you have your Bibles there, have a look at Hebrews chapter 11 and turn up to me and have a look at verse 6. This is the chapter which contains the great roll call of faith. 
and of all of the different ways that believers, great ones in the past, put their faith in God. Because it's not just like if you have faith, then everything is smooth sailing. No, just the opposite. Their faith led often to great trials, tribulations, and even times of testing. As the writer of Hebrews says at the very end of the chapter, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground, not in palaces. What a great rebuke to all the prosperity teaching that is out there, that if you have faith, everything is going to go well. Rubbish. No one in this great roll call of faith had that. And then it says, these are all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. None of them. God had planned something better for us so that together with us, they would be made perfect. Why? Because this is the definition of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1. It is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. If you only believe in something because you have it in your hands, it's probably more akin to an idol because it's a realized hope at that point, isn't it? Now, this is quite remarkable because faith doesn't necessarily mean getting what you have put your trust in now. It's about trusting in God even when you don't fully receive or experience what was promised. True faith, friends, is holding someone's hand as they look into eternity, like happened recently with our sister Claire, and saying, I know whom I have believed, and I know that he will, he's able to raise me again from the dead. That's faith. It's about trusting in God even when you don't fully receive or experience what is promised. That's why the author of Hebrews says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's about walking by faith, not by sight. There's a great illustration of this, I think, in the movie. Oh, I'm a little bit loath to say this because it's such a secular sort of, I don't know, mundane illustration. But remember, if you've ever seen an Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it's where he's trying to find the chalice which... Jesus supposedly used at the Last Supper and because he believes that whoever drinks from it um, will heal them of whatever earthly problems they have. And so in this instance, it will heal his father who's been fatally wounded. In this desperate situation, Indiana Jones decides that he has to, to find the cup. He has to pass through this chasm, this void. And he has to, the challenge is he has to step out in faith not knowing that there actually is an invisible bridge underneath him the whole time. He couldn't see it beforehand, but he's asked to take a step of faith. And it's not until he takes a step of faith 
that he sees that actually there was a bridge underneath him the whole time. What has walking by faith and not by sight meant for believers in the past? Well, it's believing that the Lord created the entire universe out of nothing, simply by speaking a word. It's what it's called a fiat command, to call something into existence simply by speaking. And we'll consider the significance of that in this passage, actually, in just a moment. There are lots of other examples as to what this looks like in chapter 11, but the point is simply this, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Did you see that? Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he will reward you if you earnestly come to him. Or as Augustine uh, once said, you can only come... uh, you can only come to understand by first believing. Which means faith comes before reason. Now a lot of people don't like the fact that you can only know God exists by first believing that he does. Now they reject this by saying, well that, isn't that a circular argument? But as Douglas Wilson points out in the documentary I shared with you earlier this week, actually all worldviews are based on a very similar premise, almost the same. Not even, if I can use this example, rationalists are rational in the pure sense of the term because you have to use your own reason to prove that that's the case, you see. So even uh, you might call rationalism is in itself actually a, a faith position. You have to believe in your reason to prove that reason is the thing that substantiates your worldview. Because actually what you're doing is you're actually believing in yourself at that point and the ability of your own mind. Hopefully you'll just never get Alzheimer's or dementia. Faith is actually the basis of rationality then because what we need to first of all do is put our trust in something outside of ourselves that remains true no matter how much we change. And only then can we break the circle, so to speak, and have an objective basis on which to inform us. Now, can I just say, this is precisely what the friends of the paralysed man did. They were rationally, objectively seeking out the Lord because they could see in him that he truly was the promised Messiah. This was an informed decision that they were making. It wasn't just intellectually lazy or even sceptical expression of, they didn't come to Jesus and go, well, look, mate, we'll just take you along and who knows, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll get in, maybe we won't. Maybe Jesus will do something, maybe he won't. These guys really believed. And so they went to extraordinary lengths to climb on top of the roof, dig a hole in the ceiling, and then lower their friend into the room where Jesus was. Do you know what the Greek literally says in this verse? They unroofed the roof. It's just really short. It's hard to sort of translate it in English, but it's one word. They unroofed the roof. They were committed. It should remind us, I didn't mention this a few weeks ago, but do you remember at Jesus' baptism, what happens? It says the heavens were torn open. 
Mark uses a particular Greek word here, which means actually ripped apart. The heavens were torn and God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Do you know that word for torn apart, ripped asunder, will only come up one more time in the Gospel of Mark. And that's when Jesus dies. And the curtain in the temple is ripped apart. And then the centurion looks across and he says, surely this man was the son of God. What was confirmed on heaven at the start is also testified on earth at the end. And it's the only two times that that verb in Greek is used in all of Mark's gospel. Here you have a similar sort of thing, almost a, almost a parallel shadowing of what's going on. The reason they did um, this, uh, pun intended, is because they believed that Jesus had the authority to reward those who earnestly seek him. They had faith. But even more remarkable than their faith is what Jesus says to them in response, isn't it? Because in contrast to the healing of the man with leprosy at the end of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, as, as great a miracle as that is and all the reasons why Jesus touched him, we looked at that last week, this time Jesus doesn't even lift a finger. He simply says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is huge. Because Jesus heals the man simply by speaking. As the Lord God Almighty did at the very beginning of creation, when he created the whole world out of nothing, so too Jesus brings into existence that which was not. By simply speaking a word, he immediately heals and he restores severed nerves, atrophied muscles. It truly is a miracle. You have to think through this medically to really get the full weight of this. It truly is a miracle. Because having not used his leg muscles before, it's not like he can just oh, walk again, oh, I had a crook leg and now I'm okay. He's paralyzed. That's why four people have to, you know, help him into the room. He's not on crutches. He's on a mat. As Mark says at the end of the account, the man picks up his own mat and walks out in full view of everyone. That's a miracle. One of the elders in my old congregation back in Sydney was a wheelchair user. That's the reference he used to say for himself. I was sort of somewhat quaint, but apparently that's the political correct term these days. Tragically, in all seriousness though, he'd become a paraplegic as a young man after he was in a car taking drugs and some friends of his drove off a cliff. A few years after that tragic incident, he became a Christian and he would often say, you know, I'd rather be walking with Jesus than in a wheelchair and have... To then have two functioning legs and be on the road to hell. It was a powerful testimony because he knew that what he needed most was not physical healing, but spiritual forgiveness. All of which points to the heart of what this particular incident is all about. Because it's not just about being healed. As incredible and as miraculous as that is, 
The biggest surprise of all is that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive this man his sin. That's the most incredible thing of this whole entire incident. Because the Jewish leaders rightly acknowledge that only God can do that. By the way, the fact that Mark tells us that Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking also tells us something about it, doesn't it? And he even says to them, why are you thinking this? <laughs> sort of like a, there's so many miraculous things going over here. You'd imagine the Pharisees going, oh, well, he knows what we're thinking. It's just another proof of his divinity. For instance, at the start of Psalm 139, we read this. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. That's what God does. Only God has that ability. And yet here is Jesus doing the same thing. Isn't that incredible? Such is the awesome power and knowledge of God. But all throughout the Bible, though, it is the Lord God Almighty alone who has the authority to forgive sin. Now, we see a really powerful example of that in Psalm 51. Actually, we just sang it, didn't we? And we read more about the context of Psalm 51 before when we talk about when it which talks about the prophet Nathan confronting King David after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba and then to make matters worse after he finds out she's pregnant as king he orders that Uriah her husband who is a Hittite not even a Jew is killed such is Uriah's faith Though that he won't come back from battle and lay with his wife, as David was sort of, you know, trying to scheme and plan, he cares more about the honour of God than David does. And yet, David writes this in Psalm 51. When he finally comes to his senses, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Before Nathan confronted David, David had become so obstinate in his conscience that he'd lost all sensitivity regarding his sin. And I can I say there's a pertinent illustration as to why even our own consciences, while often, more often than not, a reliable guide, can never function as an ultimate authority in matters of right and wrong. Because even they can become hard-hearted and we can deceive ourselves. What gets through to David in the end, though, is something of a simple story told to him by God's prophet. You all heard from it before. There were two men in a certain town, one rich, one poor. The rich man had an enormous flock of sheep and cattle. The poor man had only one little ewe lamb, which was this, as ewe lamb is, a young female sheep. Get the implication? This lamb was so precious to this man, this poor man, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, 
and even slept in his arms. You know, much like people do today with their dogs or their cats. I know you, some of you really love cats, right? Do you let it drink from your teacup? Yeah, okay, all right. There is lines, isn't there? There's boundaries, people. This, this little ewe lamb is so precious to him, Nathan says it's like a daughter to him. But then one day, this unknown traveller, not even someone who we think, well, we, we don't even know whether or not they're important, it comes to stay with him. And rather than taking just one of the innumerable part of his flock or his animals, he takes the one little ewe lamb from the poor guy. It's just so completely unjust and selfish. And so when David hears about what the rich man does, he burns with anger and he pronounces on him the full weight of the Lord. In fact, he goes further than that and he says, this guy deserves to die, which the law doesn't prescribe to happen in, in cases of theft. God's commands, it makes an important distinction here. Capital punishment is only ever reserved for crimes against God or people, never against property or things. It's a really important distinction. But while David is outraged at the wrong which the man has obviously done, he's completely oblivious to his own guilt. He's burning with anger that somebody stole this guy's pet, as precious as it was. But he can't see he's done something infinitely more egregious. All of which leads Nathan immediately to say to him, you are the man. That's you. And he then proceeds to outline what David has done wrong and what the consequences of those actions will be. Of how he has despised the word of the Lord and as such, he's shown contempt for God's name. A Gentile, Hittite, had more zeal for God and his glory than the king of Israel. David deserves to die. It's not just that David did a shameful or a wrong thing. It's that he dishonored God. It's that it's ultimately sin is against him. All of which leads David to rightly admit, I have sinned. And take the, this is the most important part, friends, against the Lord. You only know the seriousness and the weight of your sin when you know who it's against. Because all sin is against God. You see, it's not just Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, that David has sinned. It's not just against his other wives. He's sinned against God. That's what makes sin so truly sinful and deserving of eternal punishment, everlasting death. The problem is we have, you know, when I, when I say things like that, it immediately gets your back up, doesn't it? It raises your hackles and you think, oh, that's a bit harsh. Like, I know it's bad, but geez, just talk about eternal death. You think too highly of yourself. You believe when we think that, deep down, I'm not as bad as you say. I'm actually pretty good. But the truth is, we're so depraved that in every area of our lives, it's been affected. Or could I say infected? 
to prove this once in my scripture class. Like this brand new carton of flavoured milk, which all the kids loved. And I said, I'll give you, I'll give you this. But I've got over here just one an illustration. You might think that you're good people. I'm going to have a syringe here and in it is toilet water. Don't worry, I'll just put in one drop. One of the girls said, Mr. Powell, it's not really toilet water, is it? Uh, actually, it really is. Now, if one drop of toilet water goes in, it's just one drop, you know, it's a 600 mil in a carton of oak. Would you drink it? You see, the problem is, friends, is that while we might be good sailors, we're all pirates. We serve the wrong captain. And you could, it doesn't matter how good a sailor you are at that point, you're on the wrong team. And apart from his grace, we have no desire whatsoever to serve the true king. Happy with the ship that we got? Because apart from his saving grace, we would never seek to love or obey or glorify him. But did you notice what Nathan says specifically at the end of the second half of verse 13, back in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Have a look at this. Open your Bibles, because this is the promise for us today. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, part B. The Lord has taken away your sin. Only God can do that. Because sin is against him, and as such, only he has the right to excuse it. Just imagine for a moment if, if I told you about someone who had egregiously, or you told me rather, someone who had egregiously sinned against you. And I was listening to you and you had tears in your eyes about the pain of what they had said and what they had done. And then I said to you in complete seriousness, that's okay, I forgive them. What? Wait, wait a minute, you, I think... Imagining this scenario, you'd say something like, what do you mean you forgive them? I haven't sinned against you. I've sinned against me. You'd have every right to be ticked off and upset, wouldn't you? But that's what Jesus is doing here. And he has every right to. Because the man has sinned against him. Because Jesus is God. You see, the Son of Man is actually a title, not for his humanity, but for his divinity. Daniel 7 makes this really clear because we see in this prophetic vision of him being led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. It's a beautiful description, isn't it? Because he has no beginning and no end. But this Son of Man figure in Daniel 7 is given authority, glory and sovereign power over all peoples and nations and men of every language and they worship him. <laughs> they don't just acknowledge him. They don't just necessarily revere him or honor him. They worship him. People from every time, period, nation on earth, because the Son of Man the Son, is the Son of God and has become alone, seated on God's throne. And as such, we're also told that he and his kingdom is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and that his kingdom will never be destroyed. And again, this was to happen at the time of the Roman Empire. 
That's what Daniel said. Is it any wonder then that everyone who saw what Jesus did was completely amazed and they said, we have never seen anything like this. Again, don't think that just because this is an ancient book written and describing events that happened 2,000 years ago, well, maybe they had a primitive scientific understanding. Maybe they didn't just see that he had a partial paralysis. People even in the ancient world know that when you can't walk, you don't get up. As I said last week, we have to be careful of not patronising the people of the past and accusing them of being naive. They knew things like this don't happen. In fact, they said, we've never seen anything like this. This doesn't happen. That's why they're so amazed. People who are paralysed don't immediately start walking again, especially when somebody simply tells them to. There's no physio, no surgery. I was visiting my paralysed elder friend who I was telling you about before one day in the hospital. It was quite funny actually because his name was Malcolm Turnbull and I went to the hospital and I said, I'm here to see Malcolm Turnbull. He's in the you know, this ward. The nurse goes, really? Malcolm Turnbull's here? I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, he's here. (laughs) It got funnier because I went down to his ward and here he is lying up in bed and we're chatting away and this young, enthusiastic physio comes in Hasn't read the reports. Okay, Mr. Turnbull, let's get you up out of bed and walking after your surgery. He goes, that'd be fantastic. (laughs) He'd been in for some minor surgery and he'd been in a wheelchair for 30 years. And I looked across at this young guy and this young guy in Perturb go, oh, no, no, Mr. 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 Turnbull, I do this all the time. Come on, you know, come with me. And he goes, listen, son, I don't think you want to go there. But if you can, get me up and walking. Now, he was extremely gracious. And after the man realised his mistake, he was so apologetic. Please don't tell the administration. (laughs) But what do you think, honestly, is the greater thing to receive? Is it being able to walk again after you've been paralysed? I've got to admit, that would, that would be pretty incredible. Or, in all seriousness, if you could choose, would it be that or having your sins forgiven? It's not the first, is it? It's the second. As my friend said, being able to walk with God for an eternity is far greater than being able to walk on this earth for a few short years and then be separated from him. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a psychiatrist who had a very prosperous practice in south of Florida and he asked him to come onto his staff. R.C. Sproul, if you don't know, gone to be with the Lord now, was one of the leading reformed theologians in the world in his day. He said that this guy offered him what he called a princely salary to join his staff. R.C. Sproul said to him, look, in all seriousness, I don't have a degree in psychiatry, so what do you want me for? You know what he said? He says, oh, I see. This is what he said, quote, 95% of my, of my patients don't need a psychiatrist. They need a priest because their lives are being destroyed by unresolved guilt. And he was willing to pay him to come and help them with that. Now, can you resonate with that sentiment? Are you weighed down with guilt? 
Do you know today, can you walk out the doors this morning assured that God has forgiven you? You know, Jesus really does have the authority to forgive you. And he proves it by healing a man who's paralyzed so that you can see it. We read in Isaiah 35 last week when Christ, when the Christ comes, this is what it says. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Only God can do that. And that's what Jesus does. All of which leads me to ask you this. Do you know you're forgiven? Do you know it? Do you believe it? Who has the authority to forgive you? It's not you. It's God. And you give him glory when you take him at his word, when you believe his promise. But can I say to you, if you've heard this all before and all similar things, if you sort of sit back and you go, well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you're saying, Jesus, you're lying. You, you don't really do what you promised. You don't really have the power or the authority to do what you said you do. Will you give God glory? Will you believe what he offers? Does, does forgiveness as assurance fill your heart with joy? It should. Because the price of our redemption was the death of God's one and only son. What else would, would he have to do to, do it, to secure it for you? As we read in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment which brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we want to praise you today for your plan of redemption and for the promise that your Son has spoken and revealed to us that if we place our trust in him, we will be forgiven. Oh, Lord. We in no way deserve this, but we accept it and we thank you. We praise you for your grace to us. We praise you that it costs the death of your one and only son. And we pray that you would help each of us together, that we might encourage each other and preach the gospel to one another, the good news of what you have done. Lord, may we go from here this morning rejoicing. Rejoicing that you love us, but most of all, that that love is expressed by forgiving us. May that be, may that be echoing in our ears this morning and ringing in our hearts. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.